there's two of us up here this morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 11. And the, uh, the, it's kind of broke into two parts. The first part is a more immature question. Um, and the second part, not by me, but the scripture provides a more mature response to that. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow into the string to shoot in the dark and at the upright in heart. The foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Scripture of the Lord. Well, Dave is out of town today. He has a, an excused absence. He is officiating in, at a family wedding back in Michigan. So we, we thought in, in light of this special day, we're glad you all turned out for our uh, Pastor Appreciation Sunday. <laughs> I guarantee you when we finish today, you will have more of an appreciation for our pastor. <laughs> Would you please pray with me? Father, in all seriousness, we really do appreciate Pastor Dave. Lord, we thank you for his willingness and his genuine love and his commitment to study your word and share it with us week after week after week after week. We are truly blessed. We pray for him as he's traveling. Lord, we pray that his travels would be smooth. Lord, I ask this morning as I attempt to fill in, Father, that you would make some sense of what I have to say. Lord, may all of our ears be open. May our hearts be receptive to hearing your words and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'd like to start this morning with a kind of a big overall reminder. We believe that the Bible is God's word. If it's God's message to man, it's his message to me. Over the ages, some communities of faith have stated it this way. The Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. We really only have two options here. Either man sits under the authority of God's word and wisdom, or God's word sits under the authority of man's wisdom. There's only two choices. And I think it's safer to say that it's best for us to stand under the authority and wisdom of God's word. There are many voices today that say, you know, times are different now. You know, this collection of folklore, um, wisdom, and myth is just not really relevant. You know, or maybe some of it is still helpful, but, you know, it needs to be interpreted in light of today's reality. This sentiment is not new. A few weeks ago, we saw in Micah chapter 2-6 what the people of Judah said to Micah 2,700 years ago. They told Micah, one should not preach such things. Disgrace will not come upon us. 
This statement in Micah is the perfect example of man's wisdom. He says, I know better. God's words are not right. They don't apply to me. Proverbs 21.2 says that every, man, every way of man is right in his own eyes. And the book of Judges ends with a sobering epilogue. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Doing what's right in your own eyes is, man's, is born out of man's wisdom. Being and doing what's right in God's eyes is one definition of righteousness. And I'll be the first to admit that God's words are sometimes pretty hard to understand. And there are things in Scripture that I just I really don't want to hear and they're very hard to accept. And I want to share one example with you of that. Romans 13 Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. First Peter says, be subject, to the, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors. Fear God and honor the emperor. I really don't like these verses. I feel like standing with the people of Micah's day and saying, don't preach such things. You don't get it. There are many voices today who say scripture is outdated and it needs to be reinterpreted in light of what our world is like today. And if I could get on board with that siren song of man's wisdom, I would start with those verses and say, yeah, we really need to look at those in light of today. But here's the rub with that line of reasoning. Peter and Paul were writing to Christians in the Roman Empire who lived under Nero. Nero would tie Christians to a stake and smear them with pitch and oil. And then he would burn them to death, starting at their feet. And he did this to provide light for his nighttime dinner parties in his gardens. This method of execution is referred to as the Roman candle. It's hard to think of a more demonic, evil, psychopath ruler than Nero. And Christians living then were advised by Peter and Paul to honor that emperor and pay taxes. I only point this out as, a, as just one example where it's clear in hindsight that God's wisdom is not man's wisdom. History bears this out. The early church suffered tremendously under the authority of Rome and under other emperors cut from the same cloth as Nero. Why? I'm going to grossly oversimplify this answer, but just suffice it to say, that having something you're willing to live for pales in comparison to having something you're willing to die for. Man plays checkers while God plays chess. God used a short-term victory of this demonic man to expand his kingdom. In a few short years, the entire Roman Empire would be Christian. And that is a whole other tale. This sermon, but this sermon is not about submitting to earthly authority. I just bring that up to make the point that men must submit to the authority and wisdom of God's word and trust him with the outcome especially when it doesn't make sense to us. The Bible contains some tensions that seem to be logically irreconcilable to man's wisdom. But the Bible speaks truth when it says that every man does what's right in his own eyes. And that means me.
We have to constantly be on guard of this, especially in our church. We must continually submit to Scripture for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. We are not immune to flying off the handle and doing what's right in our own eyes. We've got to remember that righteousness is doing what's right in God's eyes. There's a tension in today's text that revolves around righteousness that I'd like for us to look at for a few minutes. The question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is a question that's no doubt spoken from a place of deep despondency. The Psalms are comforting to me because at least I know that I'm not the first person to feel this way or to ask these questions. I'm not the first man on earth to be despondent and perplexed about what God apparently does or doesn't do in the here and now. Psalm 11 is titled as a Psalm of David. We'll note that David lived a thousand years before Christ, so these words that we are reading are 3,000 years old. The sentiment, the wisdom, and the hope that we find here is as relevant today as it was 3,000 years ago. This Psalm uses two voices. One voice asks a question and one voice gives an answer. And the answer is much bigger than the question. Our sermon text this reading was done in a way to kind of mimic that dynamic where there's a question that's asked from maybe a more limited and a childlike perspective. And the answer comes from a more mature and a bigger perspective. The question is not a bad question, but it's born out of the wisdom of man. And the answer is the wisdom of God. The Psalms can minister to us as individual standalone pieces, but there's also many layers of connections between the Psalms. Example, the tension between God being righteous and in control and evil running rampant on earth is seen throughout Psalms 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. And you can look at those a little bit as a whole, but we'll focus in on Psalm 11 this morning. Psalm 9 primarily deals with the nations who afflict God's people, while Psalm 10 speaks of the wicked who are within God's chosen people, who do what's right in their own eyes and believe that God will never call them to account. But if this were a play, Psalm 11 would be a scene where the protagonist stands on the side of the stage and just asks a question and then receives an answer that gives context, that gives a bit of a view that, ex that helps you navigate the rest of the drama of the play. Psalm 12 and 13 continue right on with the drama of this tension from the perspective of the protagonist. And so the Psalms go, bouncing back and forth between perspectives and heartaches, comfort and wisdom. We'll note by some counts, the New Testament quotes the Psalms around 150 times. The Gospels record Jesus quoting scripture, and the Psalms are what he quotes most often. If the New Testament writers and Jesus saw the Psalms as profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, then so should I. The overall message of Psalm 11 is one of comfort. God is in control and God is watching. But this can also be a message of reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Seeing man's wisdom in the Psalm is pretty simple. If you have your Bible open to Psalm 11, let's read verses 1 through 3. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? 
For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is the view from the questioner's perspective. This country is crumbling. Evil, evil people pursue the righteous to harm and to crush them. We'll note that this theme is picked up again at the end of Psalm 12, where it says, on every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. If that's not relevant, I don't know what is. It'd be a good idea to get the heck out of here if I could. Why stay? What can be done? This is hopeless. Has anything ever like that crossed your mind in recent years? It occasionally crosses my mind, but only on days that end in Y. This psalm seems to reflect man's question, which is born of a despondent and limited perspective. All he sees is what's around him in the here and now. And I know for certain that that's often my disposition. But let's look at God's response in this psalm, which has a few different layers. Let's I'll read verses 4 and the first part of verse 5. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. The first part of this answer says, look up. Don't look around. This view turns us to an eternal reality. The Lord is in his temple. The king is in residence. And he is watching. He knows exactly what's going on. His eyes see. He is attentive and paying attention. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of a man. One commentator I read said that this might be a picture of someone squinting their eyes and looking very intently and not turning their gaze away. It's not a passing glance, it's an intense gaze. The king is not absent and he is not abdicated. He is on the throne, ruling this universe and paying attention. You're being watched. His temple and his throne are secure. The foundations are not in jeopardy. Man did not build the foundations, and man cannot destroy them. His eyes test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. God has given man freedom. How will we use it? God has given man truth. Will we hold on to it? God has shown himself faithful in the past. Will we remember it? Will we play checkers with our own wisdom? Or will we, or will we trust God while he plays chess? 1 Peter 1.6 says that we rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may be found. James 1.2 says to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 1 Peter 4.12 says do not be surprised at trials when they come to test you, as though something strange were happening. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says to examine yourselves and see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Some may say that this paints a picture of a capricious God 
who subjects his followers to misery. And if he were a good, all-powerful God, he would stomp the fires out, and your cup would overflow with goodness and mercy, and they would follow you all the days of your life. I do believe the Bible teaches these things, and this is true, but it's not yet. In the here and now, God sometimes allows trials and tests so that we can come face to face with what's truly in our heart. Do I take God at his word? Where's my hope? Do I trust my wisdom or God's word? This world is growing dark, but what we face is in no way comparable to what the early church suffered in the first few centuries under Roman rule. But in some ways, the testing is not that different. Testing reveals what's in your heart, whether I have hope and where my hope lies. And the people around you can smell if you have hope. You can't share hope by yelling at the TV or expertly seeing what is wrong with everyone and everything. But you can share hope by loving your neighbor as yourself. God's testing in the here and now allows us to see what's in our heart before it's too late. But judgment is coming one day. It is God's timing and responsibility, not mine. If you will, let's read verses the, the second part of 5 and verse 6. It says, His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. There will be a day when the wicked are held accountable and they will reap what they have sown. This is God's role and not mine. It says, let him rain coals on the wicked and that he hates the wicked. It's interesting that in Hebrews 1.9, which is quoting Psalm 45, repeats a similar sentiment when it says of Christ, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Make no mistake about it. When Jesus walked out of the tomb, that was checkmate. But there's a consistent truth throughout Scripture that God will one, still will one day call game over. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Galatians 6 admonishes us, Do not be deceived, for God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, and the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. This last verse of the psalm is where I find a mix of comfort and a bit of conviction. Let's read verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Psalm 11 refers in quite a few places to both the wicked and the righteous. And we instinctively know who the righteous are and who the wicked are. I'm part of the righteous. We have to be very careful here because this is an easy off-ramp for man's wisdom. There's tremendous tension throughout Scripture regarding man's righteousness. And I'll just give you two examples of man's wisdom, which are both folly. The first example is man thinks, the more righteous things a man does, the more righteous he is. 
And at some point, there's going to be enough good to outweigh the bad, and that's what counts. Another example of man's wisdom is man that says that the Bible is totally contradictory on this subject. God speaks out of both sides of his mouth. He says man needs to be righteous and also that no man is righteous. You know, which is it? You can't have it both ways. The Bible can't be trusted or relied upon because one part negates the other. But I want to look a bit at what the Bible does say about righteousness. And please bear with me. I'm going to rattle off a lot of verses from the Old and New Testament. And the point is that there is a tension, and it runs throughout the Bible. But please understand, the tension is not necessarily a contradiction. Number one, man is not righteous in and of himself. Righteous deeds do not make man righteous. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag to God. Psalm 14, 2 and 3 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who will seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt, and there is none who does good, not even one. Romans 3.10, which is quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, says, There is none righteous. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Psalm 143.2, No one living is righteous before God. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those verses emphatically state that man is not righteous and righteous deeds cannot make him righteous. Point number two is that God alone is righteous and he alone makes it possible for man to be righteous. Psalm 24, 5 speaks of man receiving righteousness from God. Isaiah 61, 10 says, God covers me with the robe of righteousness. Hosea 10, 12 says, Seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness on you. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Christ became to us righteousness. Philippians 3, 8, 9, Paul speaks of not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Romans 3.21 says, The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And Isaiah 53, one of the heaviest and most beautiful chapters of all Scripture, Isaiah 53.11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Scripture also teaches that it is God alone who is righteous, and he alone can make man righteous. But here's this third wrinkle. God expects us to pursue righteousness, to do what is right in his eyes. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Pursue righteousness, faith, and love, peace along with 
those who call on the Lord from a pure heart have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. Colossians 1, 10 and 27 says, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Ephesians 4, 1 says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness. Ephesians 5, 8 and 9 says, Walk as children of the light, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says, Walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 1 John 2.6 says, whoever, abide, whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And Jesus in Matthew 5.6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Scripture is clear that God expects us to pursue righteousness. In man's wisdom, this is too complicated of a knot to untie. But scripture, is three, scripture, I think, is pretty clear on these three intertwined truths. No one is righteous. I can only be reconciled to God through Christ's righteousness. And God gives me the responsibility to pursue righteousness on his terms for his glory. One more big overarching example of this. This is the same theme of many of the epistles in the New Testament. Hebrews 1 through 11, Hebrews chapter 1 through 11 tells us what God has done for us. Hebrews 12 and 13 is how God expects us to live in light of that. Galatians 1 through 4, again, explains what God has done for us. Chapters 5 and 6 are how we should live. Ephesians 1 through 3 tells us what God has done for us and who we are in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 tell us this is where the rubber meets the road. This is how your life is expected to look. Colossians 1 and 2 tell us what God has done for us. Chapters 3 and 4, how God expects us to live. Romans chapter 1 through 11 tells us all that God has done for us and why. Chapter 12 through 15 explain how that's supposed to look in our lives. So it's clear from Scripture that this tension exists all the way through it. But let's get back to Psalm 11 and conclude. The conviction and reproof for me as I have stewed over this psalm is this. I am very quick to see what God hates in this world. I am very dull to notice that this psalm also talks about what God loves. In some translations, verse 7 says he loves righteousness. In the ESV and some other translations, verse 7 says he loves righteous deeds. It does not say that he loves righteous thoughts or righteous words, or righteous intentions. If righteousness is in some sense doing what is right in God's eyes, then what can the righteous do? If I claim to take refuge in the Lord, as verse 1 says, then I can try to do what's right in his eyes. I can endeavor to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, trying to bear fruit in every good work, and let my life let my manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We did not lay the foundation of this world, and we did not lay the foundation of our faith. God did. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the cornerstone of that foundation. What God builds cannot be destroyed, and what God purchases cannot be lost. We've come to know our birthright as Americans as the right to life, 
liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But scripture teaches us that God has given us life and liberty for the pursuit of righteousness. I'd like to close by drawing our attention to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. If you feel like turning there, please do. And I think this verse from the New Testament kind of summarizes well both the hope and the admonishment that we find in Psalm 11. In this particular section, Paul is giving Timothy some advice regarding a bit of a chaotic situation, which is challenging the faith of some of the folks who were under his care. He says, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. Number one, the Lord knows who are his. And number two, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We can remember that the foundation of our hope and faith our foundation of our hope and our faith is something that God built and will not be destroyed. And number two, we can strive to do what is right in his eyes. He loves righteous deeds. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the miracle of its preservation. Father, that we can read these words that are 3,000 years old. And by your spirit, they pierce our hearts. They grab us gently by the chin and turn our eyes towards you. They give us hope. They give us correction. Father, I pray that I would have ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that wants to follow you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.